that was beautiful and encouraging. Please open your Bibles to Paul's letter to Titus. Um, you'll find the notes in the bulletin, and if you don't have a Bible, the text is written on the back. Last week, we finished the final psalm in book three of the Psalms. It ends in a vexed, low note of discouragement. And in about three months, when we're done with Titus, we will move on to the very next psalm, Psalm 80, and see how the compiler of the psalms puts immediately some sort of answer or response to the tension in Psalm 89. So no, we'll go on to Psalm 90 then. 90 is after 89, isn't it? Okay. Okay. Um, very good. But for now, we're going to turn back. We, if you remember, back in the fall, we started going through 1 Timothy. And 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are commonly referred to as the pastoral epistles. Um, I, I think that title can be misleading. It's not as much that Timothy and Titus are pastors. They're, they're not. What they are, rather, is Paul's representatives. And, uh, but just, I think, somehow, the apostolic delegate letters doesn't roll off the tongue as easily. Um, and so they're called the pastoral epistles. And so, if you remember, Timothy was stationed in Ephesus. Titus is in Crete. Timothy was Jewish. Paul had him circumcised. Titus is a Gentile, and he did not. Um, and so, in this short letter, three chapters... Um, takes about five minutes to read. I encourage you to try to read it a few times if you have five free minutes. Um, familiarize yourself with this. It's rich in its content. Um, it was written by Paul either in Corinth or Nicopolis shortly after writing 1 Timothy, probably in 62 to 64 AD. And it was delivered most likely either by Zenus or Apollos. They're referenced in chapter 3. Um, let's read the opening of this letter. And, and as we prepare to read this, it amazes me just how much theology, how much gospel Paul gets into a simple greeting. I mean, next time you write a letter or an email, um, I'll just sort of put, hey, at the top of my thing, right? Or, or if I'm being very formal, dear, you know, Mr. Jones. Paul can't do that. Paul just, take his pulse, it's the gospel. He never got over the grace of God revealed to him. He never got over the transforming work of God in his life. And so he can't even address a letter without it just being steeped and saturated and soaked in the gospel. And so the first four verses of Titus, um, I've titled a gospel-saturated greeting. Let's just read them, and then we'll take a look at them. Paul, a servant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is a classic example of one of Paul's long sentences. In the Greek in which Paul wrote, this is one sentence. Um, but this doesn't even come close to rivaling Paul's 14-verse sentence in Ephesians chapter 1. So that's, I was thankful for that, working with this. Um, and what we're going to look at is 
is five things here, and, and they're all centered around the gospel. We're going to look at Paul's gospel identity, Paul's gospel mission, the gospel message, gospel method, and gospel family. All tied up in these four verses. Because Paul's entire world is just shaped around the gospel and its effects. And that's going to set up some of the themes in this letter. Um, there's not a ton of doctrinal content in Titus. There's some. There's two sections. But it seems that Paul trusts Titus to be competent. The churches at Crete are churches that Paul planted on his missionary journey. And now he's, he's left, we're going to find next week, he left Titus in Crete to finish establishing the churches. Um, unlike Ephesus that had elders, had a foundation, the churches at Crete don't even have elders yet. They're still in a formative state. And so Titus is left there to sort of put things in order. And in one sense, this letter authorizes Titus to do that. Um, we're going to see later in the letter there are some people challenging him. There are some people teaching false doctrine that Paul's going to tell Titus to rebuke, to silence. And this letter, in many respects, will give Titus the authority to do that. So it's less that Titus is acting as a pastor and more that he is acting as Paul's arms and legs in Crete. He has got, by extension, Paul's authority. And this letter gives that extension of authority. Um, I know there are some today that claim to be successors of the apostles, and I'd like to see their book of the Bible that passes that authority to them, and then I'll take them seriously. But Titus had such a letter. He had Paul's authority, and that's largely what this is written for. So let's take a look at Paul's gospel identity. It's interesting how Paul introduces himself. He, he introduces himself in two titles. First, as a slave of God. Now, I know that many of your translations will not say slave. They'll say servant. As far as I'm aware, really only the Holman Christian standard is willing to translate this um, accurately. The word just means slave. It doesn't mean servant. It doesn't mean bond servant. It means slave. And the reason why most translations don't translate it as slave is they don't want to offend certain sensibilities. And, and it destroys the picture. A servant has freedom. A servant can come and go as he pleases. A servant can quit his employment. A slave cannot. And the point Paul is making, and here's your blank, is that he is owned. He is the property of the living God. He's not a free man. And yet, ironically, by virtue of being owned, by being the Lord's, he is free. And Paul has quite a pedigree. You could say Paul, disciple of Gamaliel. Paul, a Benjamin of the Benjamites, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee. Instead, he introduces himself, Paul, a slave a slave of God. Now he's in good, good tradition here. This is a title shared by Moses and David and Jeremiah and Amos and many other Old Testament prophets. Slaves or servants of God. And Paul starts out with his identity as he is the Lord's. He's not his own. He's not free. He is owned. Owned twice, in fact. The Lord made him and the Lord redeemed him. And that's, that's where he starts his identity. It's a good place to start. Most days, I get about halfway through my day before I remember, hey, I'm not my own. I'm not to live to myself. Paul starts off, hi, I'm Paul, and I am the property of the living God. And he, and he doesn't stop there. He goes on, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so there's irony here. On the one hand, he's a slave, no rights. He's a piece of property, owned. On the other hand, he's a commissioned representative. And the word to put in the blank here is authority. Authority. And so... Ironically, Paul is the servant leader. Jesus talked about servant leadership. And that is exactly how Paul identifies himself. I am a slave, and yet I'm commissioned. 
I have authority, and yet I am under authority. And what Paul's trying to make clear is this. This letter is going to have some strong exhortations in it. If you look down a little bit, look at chapter 1, verse 13. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply. Chapter 2, verse 15. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And the point is this. Paul has authority, but it's not authority that comes from himself. Today we got a lot of leaders who think they're authoritative because they're something. Paul makes it clear, no, I'm just a slave, but I'm commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ for a task. Maybe a good way of thinking about it is this. Um, we, We constantly have to tell our children not to boss each other around. One of them in particular likes to boss the other around. And we'd say to them, you know, you're not the boss of of Sophie. And yet there are times, (laughs) yet there are times where we will send one child for the other, right? And so if, if Sophie's outside playing and we say, Abner, go get Sophie, then Abner can go outside. And it's not that somehow Abner suddenly received authority, but the one who commissioned him and the message that he brings has authority. And so if Sophie disregards Abner when he says, Sophie, mommy and daddy want you to come inside, it's not that they've, she's thwarted Abner's will or Abner's power, but rather that the link is to us. Well, it's the same thing here. Paul is not inherently authoritative. In fact, he'll tell you he's the worst of sinners, former persecutor, he is worse than nothing, and he's a slave. And yet... He's a slave of God, and that same God, the Lord Jesus Christ, has commissioned him with a message. He has authority. And together, these two concepts, you can write beside this, bring responsibility. Responsibility as being a slave to do his master's will. Responsibility as an apostle, which literally means a sent one to carry out the mandate of his master. So that's where Paul starts. This is a letter that has some authority. He's going to extend his authority to Titus, And he wants to make it clear it's ultimately not an authority found in man, but an authority from the living God and from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how Paul views himself. I am God's, and God has commissioned me with a mission. Next, we're going to look at Paul's gospel mission. And this sort of picks up on apostleship in the text. He says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ... And then he starts explaining what his apostleship is for. If an apostle is a sent one, what was Paul sent to do? And it falls up under three points. He's sent concerning the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. And we'll look at those sort of one at a time. The primary focus of Paul's ministry is the faith of God's elect. And in the blank next to that, you can write in salvation. Paul is focused on calling out, drawing out with the preaching of the word, the faith of God's elect. And we'll stop at the word God's elect for a minute. Um, Paul believes in a sovereign God. In fact, we'll see in this text that everything is God's. That God rules the world. God rules the gospel. God planned it in eternity past, and he's bringing it to fruition in this time. And so Paul believes in election. The Bible teaches election. and In one sense, everybody has a doctrine of election. It's a biblical term. And the word simply means chosen, selected. The point is this, that it's not ultimately that in our goodness, in our natural um, virtue, we decided, hey, I'd like to know the living God but rather 
that God chose us, that God drew us, that God sent out his messengers to us and brought us in. And, and when sometimes when people hear that, they think, well, then what's the point of missions? What's the point of evangelism? If God's chosen, who's going to be saved? Paul takes it the exact opposite way. Hey, I'm an apostle because there are some people out there that God's going to draw to himself. And so I'm passionate about preaching the gospel, and I am passionate about calling men and women to faith precisely because I know it can't fail. Precisely because I know God's at work in the hearts of my listeners. And so Paul is, is focused on drawing out the faith of God's elect. That, that's his mission. And that's not the only piece. He's also focused on, what's he say here? Their knowledge of the truth. And, and faith and knowledge have to go hand in hand. There's a lot of people today that claim to have faith. They're very spiritual. And you start to ask them what the content of their faith is, and it doesn't really get much beyond, well, you know, I, I believe in God. I have faith. See, faith without content is, is nothing. It's like nailing jello to the wall, right? It's, without content, it's just sort of a feeling, sort of vague spirituality. And Paul wants them to have knowledge, information that they can believe. Biblical faith is always in response to the revelation of God. It's always in response to what God has said. There's no such thing biblically as sort of this vague, nebulous, God-directed faith in something or other. And so Paul wants their faith and he wants their knowledge. And the two have to coincide. Knowledge without faith is just head knowledge. And sort of vague spiritual faith, I believe in God, is just equally as useless. The two have to come together. God's truth has to be received by people by faith. And then it profits, which is the third point. It leads to godliness. Notice how Paul distinguishes, separates the gospel and faith, truth and faith coming together which is what saves people, but it leads to, it accords with, it's in keeping with godliness. This truth that Paul is teaching is according to godliness. The blank for point B is instruction. I'm sorry, I skipped over that. And the blank for part C is sanctification. So Paul's not confusing faith and works, and yet he's also not separating them very far. The instruction that he gives, that he's calling people to believe, is the very thing that will produce good works. It's in keeping with good works. It's according to good works. It's according to godliness. It's not the same thing, but it produces it. Or another way of thinking about it is faith is the root and works are the fruit. And so we don't want to separate them very far, but we do want them distinct enough to make it clear this is how one is reconciled to God, and this is the fruit that bears. And Paul does that perfectly here. He's the apostle for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. And that, of course, is the problem of the false teachers in Titus. If you jump down a bit, their teaching, but their teaching does not accord with godliness. Look down in chapter 1, verse 10. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, quote, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. 
but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Notice there, they got this teaching, and the fruit they bear is rotten. And that means their teaching isn't right. True teaching and true faith united will produce good fruit. And so Paul, that's the mission he's on. God has sent him to, to, to preach the gospel so that God's elect will respond in faith to teach them, to build them up in the faith so that they will bear the fruit of godliness. And this is exactly in keeping with the Great Commission there. In Matthew 28, 18 to 20, a very familiar passage, the Lord Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So in the Great Commission, there's, there's one command, disciplize the nations, and it's done by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. Baptizing, I think, focusing on um, conversion, calling people to faith in the gospel in Jesus Christ, and not to stop there, but to teach them to observe all that I command you. And Paul, that's exactly what he says his ministry is. I'm calling people to faith, I'm teaching them, and the teaching that I teach accords with, sets up, is corresponding to a godly life. That's his apostolic ministry. And it's exercising that ministry that causes him to write this letter. It's because that's his sphere of authority, that's his sphere of concern, that he's writing to Titus to help him finish setting up the churches in Crete. So now we move on to gospel message. And what we find out next, starting in verse um, 2, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. And so it's founded upon, and the blank here is, the hope of eternal life. That really links back to his apostleship. Um, if you were to diagram this, Paul's an apostle in regards to the faith of God's elect and teaching them the truth. And it's built upon, his apostleship is built upon the hope of eternal life. Why is he doing this? Because there's a hope. Why is this task that he is on worthwhile? What's, what's its foundation? It's this hope of eternal life. And biblically, I hope you know, hope is not sort of this, I hope it's going to rain, or I, I hope the test gets canceled, or I hope I don't get sick, but rather hope biblically is a strong confidence that one builds their life upon. And as we'll see, this is a, this is a sure hope. And, and hope plays a big part of this letter. Turn to chapter 2, verse 13. What are we currently doing as Christians? Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now that's a hope, but it's not the, hey, I hope Jesus comes back. We know he's coming back. It is our hope. Or a little further on in chapter 3, verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So a lot of the themes of this book are being set up in this opening greeting. This is just a greeting. 
He starts out, I'm Paul, and I'm a slave and I'm an apostle. And that apostleship is in reference to the faith of God's elect, teaching them the truth, and setting up teaching that corresponds to godliness. And all that is built upon this hope of eternal life. And by the way, there's a strong relationship between hope and godliness. In 2 Corinthians 7.1, Paul writes to the Corinthians, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Hope and confidence that God's promises are true is what spurs us on to obedience. And so these links of these chain are strong because there is this hope of eternal life. There's a reason to call people to faith, and there's a reason to teach them according to godliness. Next, we look at this promise, this gospel message founded upon the hope of eternal life, ensured by God's promise, where you could write in integrity. This, this eternal life, Paul says, was promised, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And that's a wonderful promise. Literally in the Greek, it's the never-lying God. The never-lying God. And for the Cretans... That's what the Cretans, the people from Crete, that, that's good news because we've already seen that one of their own prophets, one of their own people has already characterized them as liars. This is the besetting sin of Crete. Every culture has its weaknesses. Every culture has its besetting sins. And again, if you look down in chapter 1, verse 12, we get what characterizes the culture in Crete. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And so Titus is ministering in a context where people aren't all that truthful. And yet here's a promise from the never-lying God. That's, that's good news. That's good news. I don't know if you're used to people disappointing you, people lying to you, people being unfaithful to you. Well, here's one person, the God of the universe, who won't. He keeps his word. In fact, according to Hebrews 6, 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. It is impossible for God to lie. God can do all things, but he can't lie. Properly said, God can do all things that he wants to do. He just never wants to lie, so he can't. And that is good news. That is good, good news. This promise is sure because God doesn't break his word. This promise is sure because God doesn't lie. There's nothing in his character that is dishonest. He is entirely trustworthy. And God made this promise. And next we see it's revealed in God's time. Revealed in God's time. There's three different references to time in this passage. We'll see if we can note them. The first is the promise of life eternal, which points to the duration of this promise. God's promised us something that will go on forever. He's promised us life that is eternal. And the promise, when did God make this promise? Before the ages began, before time began, literally. And so what we've got is we've, we've got a promise that extends from one end of eternity to the other. Back before God created the heavens and the earth, back when the Godhead was simply in fellowship with one another, one member of the Godhead made a promise to the other, and almost certainly the Father to the Son, of this eternal life. 
This promise spans eternity. It was, it was made before time, and it endures forever. And again, this is wonderful news. It tells us that the gospel is not plan B. That the, the fall in the garden was not a surprise. It didn't catch God off guard. This has always been his plan. It has always been his purpose to make for himself a peculiar people um, through the blood of his son. And it's revealed, and, and the ESV says in, in the proper time, but literally in his time, in his own time. And again, you see the control of God. He's the one who promises. He didn't do it in response to anything. Before there was anything to respond to, God made this promise. And in his time, he revealed it. Not in our time, not in the Pharisees' time. In his time, he revealed it. God's, this is God's gospel. This is God's salvation. He's the author of it. And, and he brings it about in his time according to his purposes. Jump back to 1 Timothy, just a few pages back. And again, this is another theme that runs through Paul's thoughts in the pastoral epistles. Verses 5 to 7. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For to this I was appointed the preacher and the apostle. I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is God's timetable. This is God's gospel. This is God's salvation. It's being done in his time. God's promise, God's time, and finally, it's embodied in God's message. It's embodied in God's message. The proper time manifested in his word the preaching with which I was entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Um, and that word for word isn't really a reference to scripture as much as it's the gospel message that's being referenced here. Sure, the gospel message is, is contained within scripture, but Paul is specifically referencing the message which God has given him. Um, turn, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. This becomes really clear. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And if you have a bookmark, you might want to put it here because we'll be back here one more time before we are done. But in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul elaborates even further on his, his apostleship and his gospel ministry. We'll start back in verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them, and entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. There it is, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So God has revealed this message, this saving message that we call the gospel, which is simply Greek for the good news. And in his time, he brought it forth in words. And I want to just focus, the gospel is a message. You know, there's, a, there's a famous saying attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. 
which is preach Christ and if you have to, use words. And biblically, that's silly. The gospel is a message. It's contained in words and language. Now, we should image Christ. We should incarnate God's love wherever we go. We should be a picture of the love of Christ. But no one's going to get saved from that picture without words and meaning attached to it. No one's going to get saved. No one's going to be reconciled to God if we just love on them only. This is a message. It's why we got to know the gospel. We've got to be able to articulate the gospel. It's one of the reasons why kids should learn English so they can communicate God's truth to others. This is a message that has been entrusted. God has revealed it in words. They need to be accompanied by love. They need to be accompanied by deeds of love. The deeds of love alone are insufficient. The gospel is a message and before moving on, I just want to unpack that for a minute. God has revealed the gospel in words. And I'm just emphasizing the importance of, of knowing that. Let's, let's just rehearse that, what the gospel is. You know, the gospel is the good news that while we were dead in our sins, while we were God's enemies, while we wanted nothing to do with him and went our own way, bent on our own autonomy and our own freedom from him, while we weren't thankful to him, while we didn't live our lives to serve him, and while we deserved his wrath and judgment, he loved us. And he sent his son for us. The Lord Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, lived a sinless life. And he went willingly to the cross and died. And according to 2 Corinthians 5, on the cross, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Which is to say that Jesus received our penalty. Jesus received willingly what we deserve. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The cross, some have referred to as the great exchange, where God treats Jesus as we deserve and is willing to then treat us as Jesus deserves. The great exchange. That he rose on the third day victorious over death and that he will come again on the clouds in judgment. And that through faith, through turning from, from all these things that we're believing and trusting in, all the lies of our heart, all the lies of this world, all the, the saviors that this world has to offer, because all of us are building our life on something. All of, our, all of us are believing something, living as if something is worth living for. And, and the gospel says, no, turn and trust Jesus. Turn and build your life on Jesus. Turn and commit yourself to Jesus by faith. Trust in him to be your righteousness. Trust in him to be your salvation. Stop trying to work for God. Stop trying to earn his favor and, and rest in Christ. That, that's the message that God has entrusted to Paul. That's the message that Paul brought to the men and women at Crete. It's the message he brings on his missionary journeys. It's God's message. And that's the other point Paul wants to make. This gospel that he preaches is not his own. It's not his own doing. And notice that. He's just a slave. God commissioned him. And God brought forth this message in the proper time. This isn't Paul's gospel. This is the gospel. And next, in point four, we look at the gospel method. The gospel method. How, then, are we to take this message to the world? And that first blank there, just right there, proclamation. Proclamation. He says, which God revealed at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. The, the, 
The gospel is a message. It's made up of words, and words have to be communicated, and so there needs to be someone to announce, to proclaim, to herald. Those are all sort of synonyms. Uh, you see preaching, and you think of what I'm doing here on Sunday morning, and this is proclamation, but it's any time we herald or announce the good news. And that's all God calls us to do, is to herald it, to announce it, to speak it to others. The gospel itself is powerful. You may feel ill-equipped, you may feel unable to answer every objection that someone has, but all you need to do is be faithful to announce it. Lovingly, gently, maybe explain some parts that are, someone has a hard time understanding, but just announce it. I've said it before and I'll say it again. God's word, the gospel, is like a lion. You don't need to defend a lion. Just let it out of its cage. It'll take care of itself. God wants people to herald and to announce. He doesn't need lawyers to defend them. He doesn't need PR people to give him a new image. He just needs faithful people to speak his word. And Paul says that's what I'm commissioned to do through proclamation, through proclamation. This is in keeping with what Paul says in Romans 10. Where he says, how will they believe on him they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? You know, we can, we can go and love people um, we can go and, and show kindness to people, but unless we open our mouths and speak the words of life to them, we will not offer them any eternal benefit. And so in your loving people and in your serving people, look for opportunities to speak the gospel, to speak the very words of life. Do someone some eternal good. And this is at God's command. What Paul's getting at here again is this notion of authority is he delights in his task and yet even that is something mandated by God. It wasn't his choice. It wasn't as though God had five jobs available and Paul said, I'll pick apostle. And how about specifically apostle to the Gentiles? That sounds good. No, this is God's command. This is God's command. In, sec in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul writes this, If I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Now, Paul loves to preach the gospel. And what he's saying is, man, I preach the gospel because I love to do it, but if there's ever times where I start to get worried or nervous or ashamed of the gospel, I think to myself, this isn't just voluntary. It gets back to being a slave. I'm under orders. I'm under a command to preach the gospel. Woe unto me if I don't preach the gospel. And again, this is letting Titus and all those in Crete understand this isn't just Paul's idea. His apostleship, his ministry, his gospel is from God, it's commanded by God, and it's to be done by God's ministers. And before you think that lets you off the hook, we're all ministers, we're all priests, and we're not all apostles. Um, let's be clear on that one. But we are all entrusted. If you go back now to that passage in, in 2 Corinthians that we were just at. 2 Corinthians 5. Paul is, is using the first person plural, we. And I think if we track it back, we'll understand that he's speaking for all of us. Okay? He's speaking for all of us. Verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, for even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, now that's where we all fit into this text. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
the old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us. Now, I certainly hope you put yourself in that us right there. Who reconciled us. But I think you'll find once you get on the train, it's hard to get off. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, ooh, that's the same group, the ministry of reconciliation. And there you go. That is, in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Christ has entrusted to the church, to his bride, to his body, this message. Now, Paul is on a special mission as an apostle, but this is a ministry we all have. This is a commitment and a command we all have. This is a responsibility we all share. God has committed to all of us this message of reconciliation. We can go back to Titus now. We're all ministers. You know, we can hand out gospel tracts. That's great. We can make gospel videos. That's good. But first and foremost, God has ordained that his gospel and his word go forth by the mouth of his people, his ambassadors, his church, his ministers. So, our final point now in Titus, we've gotten through this introduction of who Paul is. We turn to the recipient of the letter and we look at gospel family. Paul's true child. And notice that Paul is, is not married. He's either a widower or he never married. And the good news is, I know some here may desire marriage. They're not married. Some are married. They want kids. They don't have kids. The good news is you can have children. You can have a family in Christ. This gospel relationship, because Paul is so viewing the gospel as shaping his life, that these gospel relationships trump family relationships. Um, Titus is, is a result of Paul's ministry. He preached the gospel. Titus believed, and in that sense, he is Paul's true child in the faith. And so we, as we speak the word, we can have sons and daughters and brothers and sisters and family in the body of Christ that we may not have otherwise. And he says this is in the common faith, and the blank here, without distinction. Paul's a Jew, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Timothy's a Greek. Normally Jews and Greeks wouldn't even eat together. And yet they share a common faith. Titus is Paul's true child, sharing in a common faith. Then he ends it with a Trinitarian blessing. With a Trinitarian blessing. Now, granted, all three members of the Trinity are not in here, but I didn't know what word to write for a duitarian. If you got one, Greg, let me know. So we're going to go with Trinitarian. But notice in this passage, the deity of Jesus, the deity of the Father, both um, are unpacked. In verse 4, Jesus is our Savior. And in verse 3, God is our Savior. And you say, okay, which one's our Savior? Is Jesus our Savior or is God our Savior? And the answer is yes. Because Jesus is God. And Paul is praying for grace and peace, which is simply a combination of the standard Jewish blessing, shalom, peace, and the Greek blessing, grace, grace and peace, from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. To Titus. And that's how it ends. Notice how much is, is, is packed into this passage, how Paul's whole identity and his whole mission, this whole method and his message is gospel-shaped and the relationships that he sees with other people are gospel-centered relationships. And I just want to close by drawing attention to just one fact in all of this. Do you, do you notice the sovereignty, the control of God in this? 
Because as I said, we are all ministers. And we all have this message. Paul is God's slave. Jesus is apostle. There's God's elect, God's promise, in God's time, with God's message, at God's command, to God's family be grace and peace. Do you notice that emphasis? Who's superintending this gospel? Who promised it from eternity past? Who will see it through to eternity future? Who brought it forth in his time? God did. And he's given us one simple task. He doesn't need us to defend him. He doesn't need us to be PR for him. He just needs us to open our mouth and speak the truth in love to our neighbor. To speak the words of life. That's what Paul says he is. I'm just a proclaimer. I'm just someone here to herald and announce this good news. And all of us have been given this ministry as well. We can take confidence. God is superintending every step of his gospel. He's superintending every step of salvation. And the one link he's given to us, which he will superintend as well, is that we simply announce, we simply speak the truth to our neighbor. I just want to encourage you to take confidence, to start looking at your relationships and your family and your world through gospel eyes. Look for opportunities where you can just announce, just speak the truth. Even if you don't know, you can defend it. Even if you don't have an answer for every objection. Because God will superintend it. God's in charge. He just wants us to open our mouth and be faithful. And he will make things grow. And he will give the increase. You can take great confidence. I, I want my worldview and my mind to be shaped as Paul's. So that every time I even introduce myself or write a letter, there's the gospel. I mean, it's just wonderful. I'm looking forward over the next three months to reading and studying through Titus. And I hope that we all can be shaped and renewed in the thinking of our minds to, to have a gospel identity, to realize that we're on a gospel mission, that we have a gospel message, that we would utilize God's gospel method and that we would prioritize God's gospel family. Let's close in prayer and prepare for communion.